Hi, I'm Tony, and you're listening to Click Here to Apply, a podcast where I interview the most interesting people I know about their interesting jobs as a person without a job. I want to start by thanking Peter McCormick for being the first guest on the show. There's not a ton of benefit to being the first guest of any show because the exposure they get is relatively low. They're the bait to get the first few subs. So it's an active service, and I appreciate that. When I asked him for feedback after publishing the episode, he said, just be consistent. That's the big challenge starting out. And that seems right to me. I've seen it personally with habits like dieting and exercising, and also in work from seeing my blog grow from publishing consistently. Consistency affords growth. While you can still fail with being consistent, it's hard to succeed without being consistent. So I'm committing to doing at least a season of this show, 10 episodes or so, weekly with people around the crypto ecosystem about their unique jobs. I have a lot of awesome guests lined up, and I know I'll learn a lot and have fun, and I hope you do too. And depending on how the first season goes, I'd like to expand outside of crypto and do a season on the creative industry around Los Angeles. Actors, writers, musicians, directors, and so on. If you want to support the show, subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends about it. Growth is fuel, and the more the podcast grows, the more I'll have to dedicate to it. Thanks for being an early listener. I really appreciate you. And on to the show. My guest today is Suna Amaz, the founder and CEO of Token Daily, which is one of the best communities in the crypto space. Somehow, they've been able to bridge um, competing factions and have some of the highest profile people all uh, orbiting the Token Daily brand. Um, They've got great articles. They just launched a podcast that's wonderful, and they're starting a fund. Um, And Suna is one of the nicest, most liked people in the space. Uh, I'm going to ask her about what it's like to be a founder. She's a wonderful person, uh, a blast to be around. I'm excited to have her on the show. How's it going? Going great. I'm so happy to be hanging out with you, Tony. I think it is about time you launch a podcast. The world needs more of your content production. That's all I have to say. And more importantly, podcasts. I've been hearing that there aren't enough podcasts. Yeah, there's a real scarcity. Um, so glad there's another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but my first guest was Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did. And he was like, you know, Tony, when I heard you were thinking about doing a podcast, I was like, oh, damn it, another podcast. And I was like, oh, well, that's, that's kind of a different premise. So it should be good. And I was like, all right, you know, thanks, I, I guess. Two things to say about that. I think one, I wonder if we're in that era where, you know, you oftentimes hear people, you know, got into Bitcoin in 2010 and were like, oh, we thought we were too late or something, right? Or like 2011, thought we were too late. Um, and then, I mean, even Satoshi themselves thought they, they'd come on too late to cryptocurrencies because of, you know, obviously the precursors to Bitcoin. Um, and the second part to it, when people say there are too many podcasts, well, I think like I'm never coming across a friend and thinking, oh, well, I have too many friends. I cannot have another friend. You know what I mean? And oftentimes these podcasts serve as like a friend for a lot of people. There might be a great conversation or great insights that they're going to, you know, get from this podcast. And yeah, I may not listen to every single episode, but here is a conversation that I want to listen to. And I'm never, I'm never of the school of thought where I've had too many friends, right? Or too many insights. Yeah, I, I'm definitely on... Uh, short, real-world friends, long podcast subscriptions. Absolutely. I think that's the way to go. You just started a podcast, too. Starting a podcast, one, is a great way to stay on top of the you know cryptocurrency space. And um, you kind of, it's a forcing function uh, when you have guests on to really be reading their work, um, staying up to date to what they're thinking about. But then I think the other part to it, and especially with my podcast, I wanted to add the human element to it. In crypto, a lot of people develop uh, like some kind of like insecurities. Um, they want to be incredibly polished when they say things. You know, like the most disastrous thing they could do is be factually incorrect on Twitter or mm-hmm. something in a blog they post. And so, what you what happens oftentimes is you kind of lose the personality, right? And so, I kind of wanted to just figure out who my who who are the people in crypto? Like, what are their motivations? Like, what do they do in their spare time when they're not working on their projects? And having that sort of relatability makes it easier for a lot of people who aren't in the space that think it's, you know, that still may have preconceived notions that, you know, these are, some people are scammy, some people are in it for the wrong reasons or incredibly greedy. Um, they begin to be able to see themselves as people who are in the space when they have like, similar interests and it, it it's, an easy way to kind of uh, combat that perception when you see more familiar things. So 
oftentimes you'll find people like reading the same books or um, have really cool outside interests like um, Elena Natalinsky, for instance, like she loves you know, wood shop and like make like physically making things and laser cutting. And she's always doing something like that every weekend. Huh. Um, or like Meltem's gone into metallurgy recently. Um, I'm taking like this MIT online course on uh, quantum mechanics because I'm what? reading, I'm reading a book on uh, Feynman and I got, I've always been really interested in the double um, slit experiment was the first um, instance where I was like, wow, this is amazing uh, that there's like this thing in the world anyway and so and that's all to say that you know these people are so much more dynamic and contain so many more multitudes than we see um in a professional sense so it's been incredibly fun yeah i, I mean i i've really enjoyed it so far i was telling you earlier um and when you were talking about the the people behind the projects i immediately thought about how you were asking zuko about how you slept in a car for a while and uh, dropped out of college or decided not to go to college or something and it's just I mean, you, you have these folks that are just uh, kind of at times seen as deities in the space and getting the human Absolutely. side is really fun. Like, like even just like thinking about like what would drive somebody like to have so much conviction that they would sleep in a car to make this thing a reality or have it happen. And I think that those stories are incredibly important to surface. Yeah. So, um, you, you know, I were here. I uh, don't have a job. Um, my mom is calling me every day and, Fun employed, Tony. <laughs> and, and I, I'm trying to figure out, you seem to have it pretty good. I'm trying to figure out whether I should do, uh, do more of what you're doing. So, so what, what, what is it that you're doing? Well, I do think you do a lot of what I'm doing. And I think you, especially in, in the form of writing, um, you create a lot of amazing substantive content and um that's what i'm aspiring to do as well um and i think i've always you know when people ask like what part of your identity like do you see yourself as a ceo do you see yourself as an investor do you see yourself as x and i think i'm always uh, starting things um on my linkedin you know, this is kind of like tongue-in-cheek but my uh about is like pusher unblocker and occasional direction setter and i just i've find myself um oftentimes setting things in motion um when i was in fourth grade you know that twitter meme where people were like you know describe a, a story from your childhood that pretty much like says who you are um i remember there was one instance that immediately comes to mind when i was like in fourth grade and um there is this harvest festival um that happened every fall and the tickets were like 20 bucks or something. And I wanted to go and a couple of my sisters wanted to go, um, but we were kind of strapped for cash. And so um, and my mom's like, no. And so I took that as a challenge to figure out how to come up with the money. And I noticed all my friends around me had, do you remember those binders that had clear binding and people would put photos and stickers inside their uh, binder? Like, like, like a, like a, a thing over the top, of it, like the front of it. Yeah, the front of it. And yeah. It was clear. You could put things in it, and people would see. You know, it's kind of like a, it was a collage of sorts, and people would personalize it. So um, I started selling uh, stickers that I had, like from Walmart or something, um, and I sell those um, like marked up, and it'd be like fifty cents <laughs> or dollars. And then I ended up, <laughs> I ended up making enough money for me and my sisters to go to like, and then some uh, to go to the harvest festival. And then I think my teacher ended up catching wind of me, you know, selling stickers to classmates. And she's like, you can't be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to stop. But I mean, and I think that was like my first exposure. And then, you know, in college, I uh, launched um, this thing called Makeathon and it was I just saw all the people getting bought into like hackathons and coding and I felt as though the computer, like, you know, the computer engineers had um, so much and developers had so many opportunities and some people were, you know, trying to grab them up for, um, you know, certain uh, jobs. And obviously that hasn't really changed, but, you know, a lot of people in art schools, a lot of people in business schools had awesome ideas um, or really cool um, art projects they were doing and they were thinking about design um, especially in the art school often and not, not just design for art projects, but also like, like, you know, design in urban settings. And there were so many other disciplines they felt would shelve a lot of their projects, even though they were really mm. cool opportunities that they could potentially pitch and prototype, et cetera. So launched Makeathon for more of the um, physical makers and artists and, and business folks that 
didn't find a place in hackathons. And so I think I was just always trying to set something in, in motion. And, and for the makeathon, what was your business model? Did you sell stickers to the participants? <laughs> no, <laughs> unfortunately, that you know only worked in uh, elementary school, and um, I don't know. We'll see if it works with NFTs, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, or in elementary school. But um, uh, for Makeathon, it was it, it wasn't a uh, for profit. It was a um, college program at the University of Michigan that um, I started for. I, I want it to be like no cost and people just applied and then we curated it. And we, we raised, um, you know, sponsorship from, uh, a few, um, like maker friendly communities, um, from a certain department within the university of Michigan. So it ended up being free, which is awesome. But then, um, actual folks who had pitched and made it to the final, um, tier could then, you know, put their projects on certain maker sites. Um, some of them like continue their business and we didn't take a stake of it or anything. Um, it was purely just to kind of keep momentum up on campus. Um, University of Michigan is really a, the startup scene is incredibly vibrant there and startup ecosystem. And so, um, it was just the right time to do it and get really good people. And, you know, you you think oftentimes people are like, you know, what's the monetary payoff or what is the business outcome? But there are so many intangible long-term things like the relationships I made through starting that program. I mean, like they end up like a lot of people end up going to San Francisco we ended up, you know, starting projects together and, um, and, you know, stayed in contact. A lot of opportunities have come in through that way. And, and it's not something I just like set out and calculated beforehand. It's just serendipitous in a way, but you kind of generate that luck by generating things that, um, by keeping up momentum and creating opportunities that way. And then by the sheer number of opportunities you're creating, um, it statistically becomes more likely that, um, something, so something down the line that ends up maybe being, you know, um, professionally successful for you, like financially successful, whatever, um, those things seem to be more serendipitous, but you've positioned yourself and obviously not spilling new ink on this because of the sheer momentum you have. So I think creating, bringing things out into the wild, um, I think just identifying yourself as somebody who starts things um, is an incredibly strong place to start. Mm-hmm. And then you can give yourself flexibility um maybe go down one one route if you find it's not you know if you're not enjoying it um give yourself uh you know the ability to change to change a direction but i think first identifying yourself as like someone that can make things happen i think is um is 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 the best way to start and i think that i think that a lot of you like you're incredibly independent um and and you know you're certainly a self-starter did you did you um was token to this founding token daily the first thing you did out of college? No, actually. Oh wow! And so oh, I didn't even thought about this. Um, I actually joined a, a startup. It was a twenty-person startup. Um, they're doing incredibly well. I, la- I left after it hit over you know hundred people. But how I got that opportunity was actually the person I'd worked on making the Makeathon website with. Oh no! Way. Had interned at that company. Yeah had interned at that company and was like, Hey, this is a great company. You know, they're backed by Andreessen. I think you'd be a great um, fit and you know, why don't you interview? And, and that actually was the path to going there. And then um, when I, while I was there, I remember um, a bunch of friends uh, coming to me and asking me about you know, cryptocurrencies. And, um, and I realized, you know, I was spending a lot of my time thinking about crypto and I um, was uh, talking to my friend, my really good friend, Eric Tornberg, who I also met at Michigan and through the entrepreneurship program there. And, um, he was also thinking about doing something in the space. So we ended up uh, collaborating on, um, token daily and, you know, launching it into what it is. But yeah, that, that was incredibly serendipitous. Eric Tornberg, uh, one of the GPs at Village Global. Was he, um, was he at Village at the time? Yes, and he's still at Village, um, and he had a, he has a, a community called On Deck, and he started this website called On Deck Daily, and we noticed that a lot of the conversations were around cryptocurrency and blockchain, and that wasn't huh. by any seeding, um, it wasn't by any direction or guidance on our part. Um, people were organically just trying to learn information here, and we're like, oh, there's clearly a need for this, um, and you know, being in Silicon Valley. Um, we're kind of at the heart of it and it's incredibly, it's so much easier when you're part of the crypto community in Silicon Valley to get a lot of information firsthand. Um, 
especially because at the time people weren't publishing the cadence they are now. Um, back during that time, like you could read, you know, a few threads on Reddit. Um, you can probably, you know, uh, get caught up on your CoinDesk articles and, you know, a few select blogs and you could be, you know, done with all your crypto news in a few hours in the morning or like, like an hour or two in the morning. I think you need to reserve, um, an entire weekend now, if not more, just to stay on top of what's going on now. But at the time, there was a there was a severe lack of um, quality content being produced. Huh. So talk talk about Token yeah. Daily. I mean, you guys put out incredible content, um, both blog posts and now the podcast and uh, community conversations. But um, I think you consider it more of a community kind of platform than a media site. Yeah. And the reason for that is, you know, we aren't creating original content that covers events, um, at least not original reporting in that um, as an event happens, we're breaking the story. Um, I didn't want to fall into a trap where, you know, you have to uh, generate clicks through like clickbaity titles or, you know, there are... Um, uh, sometimes it gets incredibly difficult when there are different incentives um, in place for, you know, certain people. I, I just wanted to avoid the, a lot of the mess that comes with that. So we kept it to more, um, here's like analysis or here's commentary on things that we're seeing, keeping it more long form, trying more evergreen type of content. So here's what we think about privacy. Here's what we think about, you know, keeping it more to like thought pieces. Um, but, uh, it, so when we initially launched Token Daily, um, we want it to be way more open to the community, but we found early on that people feel um, incredibly embarrassed asking dumb questions, even when, and, and one tactic a lot of communities, uh, community platforms have is if you do feel dumb or you want to, you know, start conversations, you'll seed content or like have people seed questions or things mm -hmm. like that um, to kind of get the conversation wheels turning. And even when that was happening, people were still afraid to comment. So huh. there's always... But there's always the in comment on the projects that we're launching or certain posts that were um, going up. And I think there's always the problem of like the 1% poster and the 99% lurkers. Yeah. But I think in, in crypto, it's probably like 0.002% posters and the rest are lurkers. And that just being, you know, um, it's a lot easier to comment on an app's design or, you know, intuitiveness, et cetera. But, you know, with blockchain projects, people don't even know where to start to start talking about things. And they're afraid that their questions will reveal how um, dumb they are, quote unquote. Right. And so I think that it's a tricky position to be in. We So we figured out like people like to read and consume more in this space. And I think we'll need more time until mainstream becomes more comfortable asking questions or, you know, even playing with this stuff. But, um, uh, we also were, um, yeah, launched our podcast, which gave us a great opportunity to have conversations with a lot of the people that we, um, that we cover anyway, day to day. Um, and then also, um, we've started and, you know, this is like the first I've spoken about it publicly, but we've also started exclusive, to, exclusive, um, exclusive. exclusive. <laughs> I, I said it's exclusively on your podcast because you're awesome. Um, and, uh, we've started, uh, you know, investing, um, in projects and, uh, especially cause you know, we've been helping a lot with distribution we've been helping with talent placement. So it, it made sense to, um, to provide more value that way. And, and that's where we're at right now. Token daily. So cool. What a, yeah. Do you like do you know being what? a founder? Like what are, is it joyful or is it stressful? Um, all of the above. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think you really need a high risk tolerance to be a founder. I mean, there are ways to like mitigate risk. Um, you know, some people bootstrap things, some people, you know, secure funding first and there are different ways to go about it, but either way, like, you know, you're in the arena, you've been thrown into the fire and you truly are, you know, building the plane on the way down. And, um, I think it's important to have certain things that are routinized for you so that you're able to handle all the other things that are uncertain. So in a life of uncertainty, you need some things that you will always, uh, can kind of like grasp onto or anchor in your life. So for me, that's, um, certain hours that I exercise or do yoga um, for me, that's like a certain like nights where I'll call my family. Um, I have these routines that I, that are non-negotiable for me. Um, and then that helps me, uh, approach and like tackle 
all the, you know, surprises and fires you have to put out um, throughout the throughout the week. So tell, tell me a little bit about some of those routines. So the routines that you choose, I think, should align with what your values are. Um, I think for everybody, uh, as long as, you know, they want to, you know, produce and I guess live, um, health should obviously take priority over everything. Um, I would say like, um, even over, uh, family. And I think that's sometimes a little controversial for people, but I mean, if you are not mentally and physically healthy, you aren't going to be nurturing really positive relationships, you know, with your family or your close friends. Um, it really is at the core of the relationship with yourself. So I think prioritizing health is incredibly important. Um, I always do an hour of yoga. Um, every day. I aim, I aim for every single day. Yes. And that's something, um, I won't, uh, like really compromise on because it, it, it kind of is meditation and exercise for me all in one. And I'm infinitely more productive when I, when I'm in, when I'm doing yoga consistently. And, um, I really like thinking of it as it's very time and energy generative. And so hmm. if you think about the type of work we do as kind of like athletic work, like if you're going to make an athletic equivalent, burnout is kind of the equivalent of um, an injury. And so um, you aren't able to, it, it, like, with, yeah, what the athlete would like, you know, consider a physical injury, I think is the equivalent of like burnout for the type of work we're producing. And so um, making sure that you are doing whatever you need to keep up like higher levels of energy, take a break, because that ends up actually being really valuable, even though a lot of people feel nervous about it or feel um, as though they're being unproductive by doing something that they enjoy or makes them healthy and isn't directly correlated to work because it does ultimately spill over into every other area of your life. Um, another thing for me is like calling my family. Um, I make sure I call them like um, at least like I'm, I'm texting my family every day, but I make sure to have a phone call, like even if it's just five minutes, um, at least um, every other day because um, family, it, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I have, I, I'm like, I come from a Lebanese background and I think that we're much more collectivist culture and family is a cornerstone, um, of our, of a lot of our values. And I think that it's tough because I think, um, a lot of countries in the West are more individualistic. And so I think, especially in college, I would feel shame or guilt that family is something that's incredibly important to me. And I want to be home. Um, like I would want to go home oftentimes and things like that. And if for some reason it's positioned as, you know, being like unambitious or, you know, like, you know, people, if people in other countries, you know, like live with their parents or et cetera. And like, if you hear that in, in the U S it's kind of like, um, you know, you're still living with your parents or whatever, but I think, uh. um, you know what I mean? Or it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's forcibly like deprioritized. Um, but, uh, for me, it's incredibly important. So that keeps, that's also a place where, um, I kind of refresh and regenerate and like making sure I keep up those relationships by making sure I call frequently, um, and, and have conversations. And, um, another part is I do, I'm going to sound so Silicon Valley. I do a gratitude journal every morning <laughs> and that's just like three things, like your focus, like three things you're grateful for. What would, you know, make today amazing. Um, and kind of taking around 30 minutes to think through those things for like, what would make today great and what are you already thankful for? I think is an amazing note to start the day on. Um, that's sick. What, I mean, have you, have you always been, um, mindful of, self-care, managing burnout, or is it a new skill you acquired after being a founder? Um, certainly a new skill I acquired after being a founder. You, Because of the way um, an employee, uh, an employee's day is structured and because um, you have a lot of processes in place for bigger um, corporations or like um, sometimes arguably in an ac academic setting, um, there's like time structure that somebody else has imposed for you. And it is a lot easier to carve in when you're going to have breaks because although you're accountable to somebody else, um, to another person or another entity, um, you still are able, it's more easy. It, it's more, it's more clearly defined when you get rest time and when you don't. Um, I've had this a conversation uh, with Maya Bittner puts this in, in the best way possible. So a lot of people, um, uh, like, you know, think to her like the, 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 she, so she recently, her company was recently acquired and people ask her, you know, is it weird? 
where you came from, you had a place where you were in full control and now, mm. you know, you are, you have a boss and is that weird? She's like, no, it's not. Uh, when I, you know, uh, was a CEO, I actually had like 6,000 bosses uh-huh. <laughs> right? <laughs> and they always want something. And there's always somebody with some hassle and you're employed, like, uh, like you have so many, um, stakeholders that you are accountable to and you have so, and, and, you know, obviously first and foremost, it's like your customers and making them happy and making sure they're pleased with your product. And so if you are not active and proactive about, um, when you have downtime, um, it's not, it's never going to happen. Right. Whereas if you are, um, an employee or you're a student and, um, you have like more clearly defined time structures. Um, and so then you can, it, it's pretty obvious to you where you're going to fit in your break. Well, that's interesting. How would you react to this idea that once you like taste freedom, so to speak, uh, you're effectively unemployable tasting freedom being like, you know, founder or just very rich or some other version of don't need a job. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, really good question. I think David Spinks had a good tweet about this recently. Um, he uh, also went through an acquisition and, um, and he was talking specifically about the freedom part and like, you know, whether you could ever go back to being um, an employee. And he's like, you know, there's oftentimes a lot of trade-offs um, where you have a higher constant, especially if you're, if you had a lean company before, where if you're at a bigger company, you have a lot of highly talented people around you that can teach you in a more structured way instead of you being responsible for your own learning. Um, and that way, a lot of things are um, fed to you that you may not have um, actively gone gone for. And I think, I think of life more of an ebb and flow. And I think sometimes you are, sometimes, you know, you are the like ultimate, like, uh, here, let, let me think through this a little bit more. <laughs> you may want to edit this like little flip out, but um Think of it as yeah. I think of it as more of an ebb and flow, where um, sometimes like you're in different positions, but you can you can always um, like take leadership or take ownership of what you're doing. And so, regardless of whether or not you know you are a VC or CEO or employee, you can you make that experience and you extract from it what you want. And so if you feel as though in this point of your life, whether it's an ebb or flow, you need to be in a leadership position um, or like you want to be founding something or you want to be trailblazing something and you're ready for the um, highs and lows that come with that and the complete ownership over your responsibilities, then um, you are probably in more of a um in a flow state that's like probably in like an extreme type of flow state. Right. Whereas I think sometimes when you are, and I've heard this a lot, like a lot of times when people like have gone just at it very hard for like years and years. And then sometimes they go through an acquisition, like this is exactly what I needed right now is more of ebb state where you're still not completely, you know, handing over ownership or leadership. Like you would imagine regardless of the title you have, you are still a leader um, and you're still taking ownership of um, your responsibilities and tasks in whatever, regardless of what your title says. But now um, a lot of the, you know, hassles that you have to deal with um, that aren't part of the job description, right, for CEO, like you're not also saying like the accounting part, the financing part, like all these other parts that come with it. Um, and just because like, you know, your title is a little bit more clear and there's a little bit more structure, maybe you need that because you're in a little bit more of an ebb state or you don't want to be... Um, always on, like, you know, always extremely on. So I think, I think I, I don't like the notion of like, you can never go back to, I mean, I don't even like this notion of like, it's going back anywhere. Mm. Um, based on like where you're at in life and what you need, I really do think of life as more in this like flow and ebb state, as opposed to like this, you know, vertical ladder and you're either going down a step or up a step. Yeah. The ladder metaphor is, it's interesting. Like people, I think the traditional view of careers is definitely this sequence. And even better if it's a well-trodden sequence. So you can kind of see where you are, where other people are, and where you can go in there. I've heard it described as a jungle. Huh? <laughs> I've heard it described as a jungle oftentimes. Like it's not a ladder, it's a jungle. Huh. 
yeah. like, you know, you're from the trees sometimes you're like, you know, you're always going forward, but sometimes you're going up and down and like, you're just navigating through, but in different ways. And it, it's really interesting. It's a lot more, a lot more dynamic than we think, especially because we've done away with, uh, you know, I mean, people's turnover rates at companies are a lot shorter than they used to be. You don't see the traditional model. Like you got one job and that's probably going to be the only job you have in your life or like a couple or like two jobs you have for your entire life. And you just work up the ranks. Um, and, and I think that's more of an archaic model. And there's, and I think that's because there's different types of leverage now. So is actually listening to a podcast recently about this. And I love this idea where, um, so like thinking of labor as a form of leverage or thinking thinking of labor as a form of leverage is kind of like a naive way of thinking about leverage. So like, let's say, you know, you're moving rocks and, you know, you're the only one moving rocks. It's going to take a lot more time than if you had 10 people moving rocks, right? And like you're managing them or something. And that's right. like a labor intensive way, of like leveraging um, uh, resources um, to, to move things or doing manual labor. Right. But, um, you know, oftentimes when you're like, Oh, I'm a CEO or founder, um, someone who, uh, doesn't really understand the startup space or like someone's a little bit more naive will ask you like, Oh, well, how big is your team? Right. And that, so that's like some kind of indicator of like how competent or how well you guys are doing. Um, because that's like more of a, an archaic way of thinking about this, where you have a lot of people working towards something and you're managing them. So it, it must be doing well. Um, and, and I think that's wrong. Like now, like people are trying to, um, like there are better ways to leverage resources and the world's trending towards leaner models. And I'll like come back to like what that means, like in a second, but, but pretty much the idea is that like, once you have a lot of, um, uh, labor, you can leverage, you can also leverage, um, capital and, um, and it leads to you being able to move around capital a lot easier. You have people that are managing assets and you're able to invest and money is kind of like this invisible thing. So how you get leverage over, um, like, uh, like pure finances to a lot of people, um, you usually feel like you look at CEOs, like big organizations, especially like in older times, what they are is like really financial asset managers and they're just doing financial, um, uh, management. And so that, that's kind of like the inextricable link that's made between like labor, uh, leverage and, and capital leverage. But then if you look at what the newer models are, that's like more, uh, product and media leverage where the ability to replicate what you're producing from like a content perspective, um, from, from product perspective is a lot, um, cheaper to you and usually need a lot fewer resources. Like Joe Rogan, for instance, makes like Joe Rogan making a uh, 50 to hundred million, I think per year. Okay. Um, just as like podcast episodes, but it's not because, um, um, it's not because like first episode is, um, so much better than his like hundredth and 10th episode. It's because right. he's created a network. Like he's this media, this like, you know, this hour or whatever, however he spends, he's, he's created, he's leveraged, um, media and, and his brand in order to, to make that money. So I think it's, it's very interesting the way, um, leverage has changed and, and the way we think about, um, the, our, our reach and like, and ways that people actually like create capital and like drive opportunities these days. And you, you think, how do you, how do you think about that as a founder or how do you think about that as somebody directing the token daily ship? Brand becomes a lot a lot more valuable. Um, I people have said things, and I, and I absolutely love this. Is that like Token Daily is in a really unique position because they've somehow struck a really good balance between the Ethereum community and the Bitcoin community. And that's not to say hey, those are the only two communities that exist, but oftentimes are the ones that they put in stark contrast to each other. Um, and that's incredibly refreshing to hear is that we've been able to cultivate a community that can put aside their cryptocurrency allegiances and, you know, have like humane discussions and share like common interest in, in reading, you know, this, um, uh, things that we put out or listening to things that we put out. Um, and I think that a good metric for us and like how well we're doing is just like, how many people are we reaching? And, um, and like, what are the quality of those, of those readers? Right. And so a lot of times, like we'll find that they are, um, uh, you know, they're, they're incredibly curious. Um, they are also self-starters. They're at, um, you know, FinTech firms itching to, you know, get, get into cryptocurrencies. They're entrepreneurs. Um, they're people that are just, um, uh, always active and like are generating a lot of momentum, um, in, in whatever they're doing. 
in whatever vertical and there's incredibly interested in crypto and i think that's that's incredible yeah you've got, uh, from from what i can tell for some reason uh the token daily brand attracts this like kind of cream of the crop of the full audience possible for crypto stuff which leads to good discussions and cool people yeah it's been i, I wasn't even sure you know like you know, you never want to be in a position where um, you're like, I'm not really sure exactly how that happened, <laughs> but we <laughs> have some inkling um, in that, you know, there's a certain bar where if something isn't verifiably true, we won't publish it. Um, mm-hmm. I will sacrifice speed for accuracy. So, um, you know, if it's a little, if we're a little slower to uh, publish something in light of an event, um, I'd rather let the dust settle a little bit than to spread misinformation. I think people really respect that. Um, I think the other part to it is, um, something that people I've noticed, uh, people I do not have a brand do that I recommend other people do, especially because crypto is early is reach out to cryptocurrency thought leaders and figures, whatever that you really respect. Um, especially like who are ideally generating a lot of content, um, and who are smart, um, to check your work because mm-hmm. they like on the, I mean, on both sides of the exchange, um, obviously you want to, um, elevate your reach, um, as somebody who probably isn't known in the space already. And then on the other hand, um, a lot of these people are looking for rising talent that are incredibly smart and ambitious and hungry. And so, um, you're both doing each other a service. Um, and, uh, the only caveat though, I'd say is like, make sure you're providing something really meaningful, like you're producing like work that you're actually really proud of, um, that you want reviewed. And the community has been incredibly open. I think we're early enough where, um, it's not the Delta between, um, the, the ability to reach like, um, quote unquote, like more popular or more higher status, whatever figures is a lot easier than one may think. And people are a lot more helpful, um, than, than in more traditional markets hmm. where, you know, the bigger players are already kind of established. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I have a general question and a specific question for you specifically. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll ask a general one first. What, what would you say is, um, is your superpower as a, either as a, just a founder and CEO or somebody navigating this particular community with this particular set of personalities and dynamics? That's a really good one. What is my superpower? Um, specifically in context of navigating this dynamic or what was the previous thing? However you want to answer it. What, what comes to mind when, like, what, what, do you, what, what strengths do you self-identify with? Well, you let me know if there's a better word in order to explain this. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm going to leave the sentence articulate it. But I think understanding people's motivations is something that I realized does not come as naturally to other people. And I thought everybody could kind of see through like why the, why somebody is like, why is X person doing this? Right. And I usually, and I think the way, and I think the reason that is a superpower um, is because it lets you more easily connect or um, it lets you more easily meet the needs of other people, um, which, you know, makes them, like, uh, you know, um, either, you know, want to work with you or makes them more productive if they're already working with you, um, makes them happier, it's a net positive for the space. But I didn't, I didn't realize that and this was mind shattering to me when I realized people like not everybody thinks this way, but oftentimes when someone says or does something, especially when it's something that you wouldn't say or do, um, my, the way I always think about it is like, well, why would a like why would a smart, rational human do or say something like this? Because and then building the story from that perspective, and then you begin to understand like what need they're trying to meet or what they're trying to do or accomplish, and then you can more easily help them um, or connect to them. And I realized that that may not be always. I think people write off other people as like stupid or not as informed pretty easily. And, um, and I think being able to start from like, why would a smart, rational person act or say something like this? Um, it has been, um, the easiest way to like, kind of just understand what people's motivations and behave like reasons for doing things are. Yeah. I've definitely, I mean, I definitely observe you as being more empathic than a lot of people. Thank you. That's, um, incredibly, uh, that's incredibly amazing compliment, especially coming from, from you. It's, uh, uh, I think for the, the specific question I had was like, what I observe as maybe a result of that empathy is you win allies very naturally, it seems in, in a otherwise like pretty, um, cantankerous environment. 
And I think um, I'm sure some of what you're saying, like intuiting people's needs and finding ways to be helpful to those, or at least understanding and being responsive to them is part of it. Is, is there anything else? It certainly helps with community building. Um, I think that's, I think that's the biggest thing, honestly, for me is like just being able to understand um, people. Cause I think that, I mean, that's the root of everything. Um, I really dislike that quote where it's like small people talk about you know, small minds, talk about people, um, you know, what is it? Medium sized minds talk about events and then like a uh, large, like big minds or ever talk, talk about, um, uh, what was it like? Um, uh, intellectual things, just something of that nature is like what it's expressing ideas. ideas. Yeah. yeah. Ideas. And, um, and I think that's so wrong. Like, I, I just think you need all three, like you need mm. to be, uh, thinking about people and like, talk, like you need to talk and discuss and understand why people do the things they do. Um, the events that drive those decisions and like possible reactions from events that happened. Um, and then, uh, and then that can lead to the big ideas and breakthroughs. Like you need all three and creating this kind of binary or I guess three, so like trinary, whatever, uh, type of world is absurd to me. Um, and I think that's first and foremost, I think if I had like superpower I want is, uh, you know, like, uh, changing or like stopping time, that'd be amazing. But (laughs) (laughs) this one in the meantime. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I, I I never watched the Avengers movies, but now everybody's crazy about this new Avengers movie that just came out. Um, have you seen those movies? Um, I saw a few of them. I really love uh, superhero movies um, uh-huh. because I think um, there was this awesome study where uh, they had uh, kindergartners. Um, I think they were doing a task or something and they, you know, gave it to them and had them complete it or whatever. And it was like intentionally challenging. And then uh, the second group they had, um, they had them like, I think either like dress up as Batman or like Wonder Woman or something or like, or like believe that they are like a superhero or or prime them in some way that they're thinking about superheroes. And they were able to, um, you know, do a better job and did it faster. Like they tap into this like superhuman ability. Oh, interesting. So engrossed in this, like, I mean, even in times when I have vulnerabilities or weaknesses, I think of myself as like a Wonder Woman. And then I feel as though I rise a level higher than I would believe me as normal Suna would arise. And so I hope, um, I hope that could help somebody with that thought exercise. You usually aren't supposed to verbalize it. You're supposed to just keep it internally because then, you know, if you're going around saying you envision yourself as a superhero, it may not resonate with everybody so well, but a lot of people do use that mental exercise. And I think, I think it's profoundly helpful. Maybe that's why it's not working out for Greg, right? He's not supposed to be talking about it. He should just be dressing up as Satoshi at home. (laughs) Oh God, exactly. Right. You know, um, uh, a a few other things that aren't working for him, but yes, we'll go with that. (laughs) Um, but, but I digress. So, so the latest Avenger movie. Yeah. So they, um, there's, there's this guy, Dr. Strange. That's one of the Avengers. And I always identify, uh, with him because I think this like, mapping out all of the possible outcomes and figuring out the probabilities for them is the type of thing that I think is fun to do as a, that's like the kind of mental play that I like to do. And and maybe there's like part of it where my wife um, has had the longest crush on Benedict Cumberbatch and I want to be more like him. Uh, I'm not sure which force is more dominant, but uh, yeah, superheroes. Another really good superpower like being able to like think through like second, third, fourth, fifth order effects and then like have them actually be right, right? Not like your own interpretation of what they might be, but they're actually right and being able to optimize for whatever path is best. We all try to do it to an extent, yeah. but to actually have the power to do it, yeah, that'd be uh, dangerous, but also incredibly, incredibly powerful. Do you think, what, what's something you do that you think more founders should do? I think, and it's just like personally, I think talk to your families or like whatever support system you have. Um, if it's, you know, if it's not in the form of family, like really reaching out, making sure, um, you have someone to talk to. A lot of people bottle things up. Um, they're afraid. I often hear that it's lonely. Yes. To be a CEO. Has that been your experience? It is lonely. Um, but thank God for podcasts. (laughs) 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 They do become your friends. Um, no, but also, also reaching out to people that, and this is important that you really, really trust, um, that you can be very vulnerable around. Mm -hmm. Um, there is this kind of like contrived vulnerability that people have on Twitter where it's like, I'm going to be vulnerable now. I I think, Mm -hmm. uh, Silicon Valley did a great episode where, um, 
um, I think uh, Ehrlich uh, is like pitching. He's like, this is me trying vulnerability. I mean, and then there's like, the, you know, you do the dance and try to be vulnerable. But then there's like the authentic vulnerability that you have with only like a select few people that you truly trust um, uh, to be this way around or let them know what you're scared of and like help you think through certain things. Um, and I think having that support system is incredibly important. Like, look, at the end of the day, like if you get sick, like your job isn't going to pick you up and like nurture you and like make sure you're feeling okay, you know, et cetera. So I think not losing sight of the humans around you, making sure that, um, you know, they know a lot of your time is locked into this company and making it succeed. Um, and, but then also understanding that like, you know, the life is still going on and, um, and, and, you know, you can't, it's really tough to do life alone. Yeah. <laughs> like reaching out to those who love you, making sure they feel loved as well. And like, and being able to lean on them in times of support, I think is incredibly important that and exercise, exercise, exercise. Like there's the, um, you know, the, I mean, everyone by this point has read it, but, um, the habits of highly effective people and, and, you know, there's the golden goose versus the golden egg type of, um, uh, metaphor where it's like, if you're always producing like all these golden eggs, um, you, you can keep doing that for a limit, but then, you know, eventually takes a toll on, on the goose and then it dies. Right. Um, but then if you are nurturing, you know, your actual productive capacity and like making sure you are, um, healthy and like, you know, it's, that it's, it's a marathon. It's, it's not a sprint. Or just get a better golden goose or. <laughs> you actually oh my gosh this uh, this is another tangent but uh have you ever seen the um the study on uh the super chicken no i love it already though oh this is this is wild this actually this i think is one of the you know like you you like there's anecdotes that were very formative for you and thinking about the way the world works yeah and this was certainly one of them where uh, they had re um, researchers breed. I mean, there's always researchers of like two. <laughs> there's always a control group. There's always a you know something they're trying to prove. So one of them is obviously the control group. They have uh, chickens um, breed regularly and normally, and um, then they have they're on the hunt for like super chickens. So these ones produce um, eggs uh, at a, a faster rate or something, or or healthier eggs, or like there's not as many. Um, defunct. I mean, they just take like the healthier, most productive chickens or whatever. Um, and they are selecting the top breeders and like it gets smaller and smaller and like it gets like the top producing chickens. Um, and then the other group generation over generation is just, uh, continuing as, as regular. And so when they go back, they expect to be a lot more eggs from, um, the super chickens, the super chicken group, than the, um, regular control group. Um, but it turns out that, um, like a lot of the chickens were dead what? <laughs> because they were fighting for, uh, like, <laughs> they were actually, um, fighting, uh, there's like limited resources and they're fighting to like be misproductive. It's incredibly odd study. Like I certainly like, uh, recommend you check it out. And so there's this, you know, there's this kind of, uh, there's just like the, what you're supposed to moralize from that or whatever is like, you know, you don't want to optimize for all of the super high competitive performers and that everyone um, kind of balances each other out. You need to think of it as a unit as opposed to the individual all stuck in a room. Um, I think you had spoken about, uh, I, don't, I don't know so what, what we were discussing. Socialist propaganda. It's, it's, you want to love, like different people have different talents and leverage them in different ways. This is, you know, and that's actually another interesting tangent. This is just going to be an episode of tangents. Have you um, read the Fatal Conceit? The which one? Fatal conceit. No. Where, uh, well, like, one of the premises of the argument is that, well, you know, um, uh, you, you want to think about different organizational structures on different scales. So, uh, you know, what makes sense, you know, for this author is uh, like uh, you think about like kind of like a libertarian or something um, type of organization uh, at a national level, uh, democracy on a state level, and communism amongst your friends and family. Huh. Um, oh. uh, huh. And I think. I think that's a very interesting way to think about that. So yeah, maybe in this unit you want to think of it more as like a, a socialist type of uh, type of organization. But anyway, uh, that said, I am I am uh, all pro uh, democracy and liberty and freedom. <laughs> <laughs> do you um, do you do you think there are too many, too few, or just right number of founders? Mm. I think 
there, there's a really good um, quote once or something like it's never been easier to start a company or like to, to mm-hmm. be a founder. It's, it's never been harder to like uh, grow one or something like that. Um, and I, I think that certainly is the case. Um, capital is a lot um, easier to, to get now. And especially in the Valley, um, it's a lot more fungible, but I think that the actual, to actually succeed as a founder, especially with a lot of products that end up being code-based and rely on network effects is a lot tougher by the very nature of um, monopolies. And so um, I think, I think that it's never been easier to start a company. I do think like being a successful founder um, seems and it depends on how, how you're going to define that success because now people do acquisitions and there are, you know, there are like, uh, you know, mediocre exits that people can count as success. But I think that uh, it's, a, it's a lot tougher to make something really work and hit like PMF, whether it's like product market fit or like protocol market fit. Yeah. And with the equity company, you can't just throw some tokens on Binance. So the liquidity events are different. I mean, you tell that to, you know, majority of the companies on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's also interesting to think of. I wonder, um, everything fl- feels more fluid, like kind of to go back to the jungle metaphor, which I haven't fully conceptualized yet. But instead of a, a sequence or like kind of this um, narrow view of being a founder, a narrow path of succeeding as a company, there are now all these different ways people can um, be a founder in the sense that they they start something where there was nothing and they pursue some kind of outcome for that thing that they make. Like even, even a hobbyist podcast is a startup, so to speak. And you can end up Joe Rogan and make a lot more money than almost any startup makes. And we're going to continue seeing that. Like it truly is the, um, it truly is the, the era of like the uh, creator um, and, and people, you know, because of the sheer, like how easy it is to leverage these platforms. And this is what people talk about when they talk about switching costs from one platform to another, especially when, um, you know, certain platforms, um, like medium, like Facebook and whatever derivation you're looking at it, like whether it's Instagram, whatever Twitter, um, creating an alternative is very, very hard when there are such massive amounts of users on that. And so it's like, how do you leverage that as an independent? Um, and I think we're going to be seeing more of that. And I think that's why de-platforming is be- going to become more of an issue down the line. Yeah, I wonder whether, um, I mean, for for a while, and I, still, I mean, today still, the creators that are successful mostly rode the wave of some centralized platform, like YouTube stars or Instagram stars, um, whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and now it feels a little more like it's getting more distributed. Maybe it's the bubble we live in. Uh, bloggers, podcasts. Like, there's also the question. Yeah, absolutely. There's also like this uh, interesting question of like, you know, if there are so many influencers, like who's left to influence? <laughs> yeah. I personally, <laughs> though, I, I mean, I think uh, I think everybody should have a newsletter and a podcast. Like that. that's not dystopian to me. That's great. Like I would love to have people put effort into producing content that competes with other content, which forces it to be better. And then have like all of these options to select from. There's this like I I, I had never understood the uh, kind of people that would bemoan a trend of more people wanting to start things and produce things for the world. Absolutely, I completely agree. And you know, there's another layer to it where I just think we will have. I would hope we would have um, more uh, respect for each other um, because talking isn't everyone's medium of choice Hmm. and maybe they're too shy to be publishing or like people are publishing. So they don't feel the need to, but there are incredibly deep thinkers who's they shine on mediums that are not, you know, impromptu speaking. And so like, how would you know? I mean, and and also I think the other added benefit is like, you aren't, you don't necessarily always see what the person looks like. So you can strip away all these preconceived notions you have of somebody and you can just evaluate the merits of their thought. And I think that that's incredibly powerful and I hope that becomes uh, more of an arm. I completely agree. Yeah. You can Who, see- um, what, what kind of people would you say should not try to be founders or creators? If anybody. Some people. Uh, so the role of a founder 
um, or creator does not always manifest itself similarly. So oftentimes when a lot of us think of a founder, we may think of, you know, somebody in an office and a bunch of other people or, you know, living away at their laptops and getting, uh, working at their laptops and, and, you know, this one person that is in a corner office or something that's running the show or, um, uh, and, and I don't think it's necessarily true. Like you can found something that, you know, doesn't necessarily need to have a bottom line. It's just simply something you're putting into the world. Like I remember someone speaking of like, uh, creating, uh, products and like thinking of writing as a product. I remember when like that, that notion of like that, that it counts as mm. making creating was so uh mind warping to me and that was like it was like uh 10 years ago but i didn't i didn't think of that as something that you are creating or making i thought it was just writing for some reason that wasn't even you know considered as part but it's incredibly important it's a high leverage activity certainly um so i think in that capacity where foundership manifests itself in so many different ways I have this like idealistic part of me. It's like everybody should found something because surely everyone is curious or interested in something. Um, but uh, I think if you're thinking about it in a more traditional sense, if you're more comfortable with a lot of structure and a lot of direction and maybe, you know, your personality type is more of um, there's people who uh, succeed when they feel an obligation to somebody else. And, you know, and if they shine by like, you know, recognition and promotions from a higher up, maybe that's what they're more comfortable in. And that's, that, that's how they thrive and that's how they succeed. And that's awesome if that's their definition of what they want to do. But I do think everyone should try to create or put something into the world that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, do you, I mean, are, are there people that you think shouldn't be founders or creators? Um, you know, just straight up scammers. Um, <laughs> really good point. Really good. <laughs> I, I came from a point of assumption where there were good intentions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, I think in, I think in general, I, I am all about freedom and experimentation. And I think, like you, I think everybody should try it if it's and see if it's it's for them. One of the the main the thrust of this podcast, I mean, it's, it's nominally about me getting a job, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm not actually like applying for jobs, trying to get a job. It, it's more just exploring this concept that there are all these things people are doing out there and we only ever get to experience some small number of them. Most people, I think there's a stat that's you change your career two or three times on average. And that stat is used to say, look how crazy people are. They change their jobs so many times. It's wild. Like, don't worry. But two to three times, I mean, that's two to three times out of how many jobs? It's how many different ways to spend the majority mm-hmm. of your waking hours? Like, that's wild. Um, Absolutely. So I think you know, I'm somebody who's who loves to experience new things just generally, like new foods, new hobbies, new whatever. Um, so to just just from a pure stats perspective, it seems unlikely that I have done the job that is the most joyful, most productive thing that I can do. And, um, you know, given that it's now so much easier to start something new or create something that wasn't there before, uh, it just seems like a missed opportunity for people. And I think a lot of the reason people don't do it is social conditioning or moralizing by people around them. Um, so yeah. And to be sure, like you don't, uh, being a founder or creator doesn't have to be your career. Right. Right. True. Like you can found something like going to, um, you know, I have a friend that, uh, you know, distributes like roses to seniors during Valentine's day. Like she, I mean, founded that you could say, but it's not her career Hmm. and it brings her and she likes to do it. And it's, she, you know, brings a group of people together to distribute these roses and she, yeah, in a sense founded that. And she, she could consider herself founder. She's certainly not putting it on her LinkedIn resume, but it's, um, it's creation and foundership takes manifests itself in so many different forms. And I, I just, it's hard for me to think that, you know, you as a human, like, you know, with eyes and ears and a brain, like are not curious or interested in anything, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the capacity that you're interested in anything in the world. um, I I think that you could certainly create something or, or, or found something that even like you want to start because it brings you joy and it doesn't necessarily have to be profitable or you don't even necessarily have to recruit anyone to do it. It could just be something that you want to start for yourself. Totally. Who else do you think I should have on the podcast? Like who do you think has a really interesting job that you want to learn more about? You know, like when somebody asks you your favorite movie and yes. then you're like, I forgot every movie I've ever watched. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Um, there's this, uh, there's, there's, there used to be this podcast called literally Hey, cool job. And the girl would interview people who she thought had really cool jobs. This is, this exists. <laughs> yeah. It's called Hey, cool job. She has since changed it to, um, learnings she's had and she just shares these like micro podcasts where she just is like, um, here's a thought I've thought about this week. And so it's changed. But the, if you look up, Hey, cool job, um, it's just her interviewing people. She thinks have awesome jobs. God damn it. I'm going <laughs> to fire my diligence team. <laughs> okay. That, that's a good, good, uh, lead. I think, okay. When I think about people that really love their jobs, or I think they were super cool. Like, I, I think about people who are generalists and made it work because I think that um, for some reason we've flipped into a society where, you know, being a specificist is you know, being world-class expert at one thing is the Holy grail and everything that's, you know, you want to aspire to, but you know, like what happened to the concept of the Renaissance man and the Renaissance woman where you could be really good at multiple things. And, and I, and I, and we've just kind of bucketed that into a generalist and I, it's really interesting, but I, I do find, um, uh, like, I think, you know, I think Nadia, I think, um, and, and to be sure, like she, she, she's like specified what her, what her thing is, but, um, I, I like people that are able to just like, think and research and write and have multiple interests. And I would, and I would classify like, um, Nadia Agbal under that, oh, like yeah. Zugal, um, perhaps, um, uh, I mean like even like Tyler Cowen, I think to an extent, um, is, you know, would identify more as like a generalist. Um, I think, uh, Naval, somebody who has like a, a, like a wealth of different, um, uh, interests. Mm-hmm. Um, David, uh, Perel, certainly, I think I think these are I think those are super cool people to to interview and like learn more about their their jobs. Yeah, very interesting people. Do you do you consider yourself a generalist? Yes, um, I've all I, I've I've always loved to know about a lot of things um, and do a lot of things and try on a lot of different lives. And I think it's very interesting when people feel need or pressure to be a specialist. And I mean, I fall I fell into that trap too. Um, uh, when, you know, like I was studying, um, engineering at university of Michigan and I was like, I was only thinking of myself as an engineer. And, um, and I, and I found that like, when I, when I thought to myself, like who lives a very awesome life that I like, I would want to live or who do I want to be like? And there were always people that, um, did a bunch of things, uh, that like wrote about a lot of different topics, um, had started things and founded things. They weren't always necessarily in the same sector. And, um, and, and I think that actually worked to their advantage because they were able to take learnings from different places and, um, bring them, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's the, the benefits of being, um, you know, coming in with fresh eyes, some things that you're not jaded by all the regulations and rules are already put in place that make it, um, quote unquote impossible. Yeah. But, um, I, I really do think life is too dynamic and too precious to like not try on different lives and, and to, to not try a lot of different things. And you can have more than one interest. It's okay. And you can pursue them and that's fine. And if people don't think you're going to be a world-class expert at one thing, then, then they're limited by a very um, myopic view of the world. That's yeah, I wonder, it's like the, there's this, there's this uh, stereotype of millennials as um, un, like unwilling to commit to things and disloyal to organizations and um, scatterbrained. And I, I wonder now whether, and it wasn't the case right after college for me, which was what, eight years ago, um, because the, it still seemed like this kind of well-trodden path was pretty good. But now, in 2019, the people that you perceive as the, like, at least one category of people you perceive as really successful are those generalists that have a wide, like, a wide expanse of different things that they do sometimes. Yeah, and they've made it work. And I think that's amazing. Is you cannot, I mean, I mean, to be sure, you can't, you wouldn't say, you know, they do everything, right? But they picked, like, you know, a handful of interests and, like, these are the things I would like to spend you know, a lot of time learning about and reading about. And it's not, I think the important thing is not limiting yourself to one thing, but giving yourself the ability to commit to a few things and maybe down the line, learning something new and then adopting that as um, a new thing that you want to do. Yeah, and I think totally. allowing yourself ability is important. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get you on the phone with my mom. You can explain it to her. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Sina, thank you so much for coming on. This was, 
Absolute pleasure. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your company, what you're up to? Um, you can uh, go on tokendaily.co and um, also subscribe to tokendaily.co slash join dash newsletter. Um, and if you have show notes, we'll put them there. Thanks so okay. much. Jonas. And uh, you're, you're raising a fund. Where can the huge LPs that listen to this podcast go and learn more about that fund? You can email me um, at, suna dot, uh, at suna at tokendaily.co. And that's a great start. Perfect. Click here to apply is made possible by members of tonysheng.com. To become a member, go to tonysheng.com and click the membership button. If you enjoyed this episode, please support the show by subscribing and reviewing the show. You might find your review featured in a future episode of Click Here to Apply. Got a question or suggestion? Tweet at me at Tony Shang on Twitter. My DMs are also open. Thanks for listening and see you next time.